0: Raw Ag is your link to the food chain and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angadis. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins.
1: This is episode 31 of the Raw Ag Podcast. My guest today is Grant Sims. Grant and his family run down under covers. We are talking today about multi-species cover crops. Welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast, Grant. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. And um, what, are you, what have you been up to?
0: Oh yeah, pretty busy time of the year at the moment. We sort of do a bit of hay, and then um, we're yeah, we, with the seed business, we're mixing up a fair bit of seed and getting that out with all the rain, and uh, just about to start harvest. Um, so well, hopefully this week before the next uh, lot of rain that's on the way.
1: <laughs> no worries. And whereabouts are you at the moment? Um, yeah, just at home,
0: but yeah, we're at, yeah near Lockington or near Echuca, um where we're we're based. Yeah. Yep.
1: Very good, and um, down under covers is um, sort of making a few ripples in our industry at the moment. Um, uh, Multi species uh, cover crops, and you know, you're def- you're helping us at the moment at um, Timania. Um, tell us a bit about what what this, what all this means.
0: Yep. Well, um, I suppose uh, we sort of fell into it in a way, like. Um, like I'm 6th generation on the farm and we always grew up sort of cropping and, and sheep and then um, you know just sort of I got involved in Vic No-Till and a few things and, and uh, we we got rid of the sheep there for a while and um, we're just purely cropping and then um, we sort of were starting to run in you know certain problem paddocks within the soil just having problems you know with break crops and rotations and being profitable and, and trying to tick boxes that we had within you know, improving our soil, and um, and I sort of come across, you know, where we're adding, we would see different plants growing better beside each other, and we started playing around with companions, and then uh, then we kept adding more diversity, and and we just found when we got that more diversity in in the uh, in the mix, we could just grow large amounts of biomass with you know very little input, and seem to be you know pretty good with disease and things, and. And then we sort of thought, well, how do we, um, you know, make money from this? And we started integrating, I had some neighbours with some cattle and we ran them on there and they just seemed to do really well. So, we just started growing, we've probably been over 10 years now, growing these multi-species forage crops as a, as part of our cropping rotation and a, and a tool to improve soils, um, like their structure and function and things like that. And I sort of started getting asked to go around the place and talk about what we, we did and could see that you know, that people were looking at getting into this. And um, so we just decided to turn it into a bit of a business where we were sort of making mixes using our own experiences but not just selling seed, just offering sort of a system that we do um, from farmers to farmers and trying to make it a bit more cost-effective and, and affordable for people to do. So, yeah, it's been a, a lot of fun.
1: So when you say multi-species, how many species are we talking about? Oh, like... You know, most of them
0: eight or more, you know, say our winter mixes 13 to 15. Like we we did a mix the other day that had, I think, 25 species in it. So, um, but yeah, most of our mixes sort of 10, 10 or more species in there we, we aim for. Um, and we, we sort of find there's a fair bit of science now too with this that, um, you know, every plant's got the ability to sort of uh, different root systems that can explore different areas of soil. So then, things become far more water and nutrient efficient and and they'll also scavenge and some plants are higher in zinc, some might be higher in, in calcium and things like that. So then when we've got animals grazing them, they've got a, it's like a smorgasbord really, we call it, um, instead of just ryegrass clover where they might, it's sort of like, you know, Vegemite on toast or whatever, we're getting a bit of everything. And, and we sort of measure this with our own cattle um, for live weight gains and and not just that performance, but getting back in calf and and those things, and finding, you know, some of our live weight gains are getting really, really exciting. And um, you know, conception, I think this year we we're about ninety six and a half percent back in calf in a in an eight week window. Um, and and even when we're weaning our um, our calves off the cows, they're they're back at their full weight. Like even while they've got a calf putting on, you know, over double average sort of live weight gain. So it's yeah, it's pretty pretty fun.
1: Um, yeah, so you're seeing so you're seeing some really really good effects. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, Dad, uh, with the advice from a fellow David Deberman, who you may or may not have heard of, they used to they used to say, you know, multi species at uh, our family place at Pardoo when when we were there, and um, but that was for a bit of a different reason. That was so that you know different plants would take up residence in different sort of soil types and um micro climates micro environments within the paddock Um, this is different to that isn't it what you're doing
0: yeah 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 similar like um you know we can we can plan a a well mixed up mix across a, a soil and it might change in you know the soil type might change a little bit um in different areas and then certain plants will dominate um, different areas of the soil. and it, it's sort of like I suppose if you go back a step and looking at you know when we've had some sort of ecological disturbance and then you get weeds and things in trying to repair, you know whether it be a fire or, or um, tillage and different things like that. So we can now sort of look at plants that can do replace those weeds and and put them in there to repair the soil and improve
1: the function um, yeah,
0: and, and free the biology like just get that more life back
1: happening in the soil. So, I suppose an example that pharmacies is you know like a campsite for particularly sheep, don't they I think they do that more than cattle where you um have a campsite in a set stocked paddock where they you know you grow lots of in our country um cape weed perhaps,
0: yeah, yeah, no that's right and and I think another sort of easy way of thinking about it too is like if we've just got one plant like a wheat plant growing in the paddock, it's all got what's above the ground looks the same and same below the ground, so all of a sudden we add in a taprooted plant, another plant with more lateral roots. And all of a sudden, instead of that one monoculture exploring the same area of the soil, looking for the same nutrients and 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 moisture out of that area at the same time, we've got a great we were able to open up a larger bucket. And then now we're farming. And and I think when we're farming, you know, we measure everything two-dimensionally, you know, length by width, how many acres we're we're running. But if we can start tapping into that third dimension you know, through rooting depths. Now all of a sudden, and then bringing up, using plants to bring up nutrients that are leached through the soil, which I think at, at the current prices of fertilizers, what they're um, looking at. You know, if we can get a plant to either fix nitrogen like a legume or release phosphorus through their root exudates, all of a sudden we can start cycling. And there's a lot of nutrients in that that can- can be locked up in the soil and the only way we can make them plant available is through biology, either root exudates or or other um, sort of microbes that can do this.
1: Yeah, so there's some function that goes on around the rhizosphere. So you're sort of, uh, each rhizosphere is slightly different in its requirements. Is that that how it works where you get so much diversity below the ground as well as above because of the um, multi-species?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I suppose, like we all know, the the nutrient and mineral charts where different minerals become more or less available at different pHs, and and plants can have the ability to change pH within their root, and some have high, you know, pH or very acidic, and so they've got different abilities to unlock and liberate and cycle nutrients. Now they'll share these nutrients between species that aren't able to do that in trade for something that they're better at doing, you know, uh, liberating from the soil. And they do this, they call it through this thing called quorum sensing, which happens through fungal associations. So this is where, you know, looking after the soil to encourage fungi is really important to get these synergies and get this happening. And and most of the time in in agriculture, we kind of do things that either kill fungi or suppress it and swing it more bacterial. So when we can see this, you know, it can be a bit of magic happening. it's when we're encouraging those that networks and the fungi and things to, to go. All
1: right. So, what kill, what sort of things kill fungi in. And I, I, I was going to bring this up later on, but conventional agriculture, what is what is conventional agriculture? Because some people say conventional agriculture now is, you know, in PKS, sort of um, chemis- chemistry farming. Um, yeah. or, or is what you're doing conventional and we're just going back to it?
0: Oh, look, I, I don't know. And I. It's I sort of everyone always wants to put labels on this yeah, and that, and, yeah, yeah, they do, you know, and we're regenerative or we conventional, and then a well, lot, you know, I think at the end of the day, everyone's trying to do their best to, you know, whatever they're doing, um, to to manage and look after their soil because I think if you're a farmer, you know how important that is, um, so yeah, but I think a lot of the practices that we do, you know, tillage, that'll kill fungi. Um, Obviously, fungicides, you know, some of these things are out here treating because of disease. Uh, You know, insects, you know, we put on insecticide or fungicide, well, they're they're usually symptoms that appear because of a lack of diversity, lack of some sort of nutrition. You know, we've sort of been able to manage these things by getting biology and nutrition in. And and we just find the more diversity we have in our system, the less of these things um, appear. Yeah. Which is um, a bit of fun, and I don't know. I, I like to measure if our plants are photosynthesizing at a higher rate. That means they're pumping more carbon. They've got more nutrient density, and and that's I don't know one simple way we can see because some practices can drop that performance of a plant, and some some things we can do can increase that. So we just try and make sure we're increasing that plant's ability to photosynthesize.
1: And so, do you do that? Do you measure that with bricks levels and or how yeah. do you measure?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yep. Yeah, Any time we go to do anything to a crop or whatever we're growing, we might take a brix reading before, and then we do one after, and then we, you know, and that's a really good way to learn if we're putting this product on, whether it's lifting it or dropping it, and just to be mindful of what we're doing. But then we'll we'll send tissue and sap tests away as well to sort of to then you know give us a bit more data on that um, as
1: well. Yeah, so um, you have sent us down a seed mix, and it's got. Um, I must say, when when I opened the bulk of bag and the um, and you know everyone on the team looked in, um, they thought I'd just we got confused with Spudgery um, <laughs> seed feed, and um, it's yeah. quite an amazing thing to open up and look in and say, um, what did I get, and and how do those things work together so i've got things like lap lap and um uh you know some rape and millet and all those sort of things that you'd sort of expect but not all in not, not all bound up in you know in in t- 10 or 15 different and uh, different species
0: yeah yeah no it's pretty cool and it's it's funny now when you start looking at them all the time and, and growing them yourself um you know, the more we see diversity in, the, the better it sort of looks. But it, it can be funny and it, and it can be a different mindset to even managing and grazing them. But I suppose, like, you know, there's the plant, different plant families, legumes, grasses, cereals, brassicas, scavengers. So it's about sort of stuff we've learned on how to get the ratios of those right so that you're getting good return on your investment in, in, in like, the animal. Or grazing side of it, but then also that you're not overdoing it with one thing and not enough of the other to to make sure the roots are doing their job in the soil as well. But it's it's really exciting because you know I'm very lucky to talk to um, different soil scientists that I've met over the time, and and we can now sort of look at tailor make making mixes for a desired outcome. You know, whether it be in a fruit orchard to help bring in beneficial insects or or suppress nematodes and different. Soil-borne diseases, to even increasing the lactation in a in a in a lactating animal. Um, In that mix, you've got the dairy mix. We call it. It's for more high-performance animals, and there's plants in there that, when they eat it, it'll it'll trigger something in a milk-producing animal to to create and lactate and produce more milk. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting now when you start to learn all these things and and use them plants to sort of. Improved performance rather than just buying something out of a jug and
1: or a bag and pouring it in. That's pretty uh, amazing. To, yeah, yeah. And uh, I noticed last year, in in um, we had an early go at it last year, and um, you know, and compared it to our millet, and I don't think the production was any different. Really, I couldn't tell, but that that was good enough for me. You know, all the things I don't know, and I'm listening and hearing and um, and, you know, trusting that everything else that I'm hearing is happening behind, below the ground. Um, and I didn't get a drop in production and probably probably did get an increase in production. I just don't realise it. Um, and that's, you know, that's why we're coming back for the, to do it again and again. Um, but even the, the you know sunflowers in it, um, I just, I, I thought that, you know, they looked so unpalatable and how, when, what, what were they doing there? And then all of a sudden I went out one day and they're all gone. Yeah, you know they got to some stage and um, the animals ate the whole thing. They didn't even leave the stalk.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. no, nah, that it's an. I love that plant and it's really good in the mix and it's something, especially with the dairy farmers, where we're so used to just a ryegrass clover and a three-leaf. We're grazing it down and and you're keeping it nice and mown down and nice and even. And and but with the sunflowers, like the cattle don't seem to touch them until they're nearly flowering or setting seed, which I think is is a really good thing because when we're just mowing it down all the time like a nice manicured lawn or carpet, you're pruning the roots every time and we're never letting that taproot get down and, and explore and create that infiltration and open up that soil. And And the sunflowers will do that, the animals won't touch them. So that allows them to get the taproot down and then when they get later in their life, they smash them. And we've seen our beef cattle, their coats go shiny because they're very high in energy, the oil seeds and um, they don't need to crush them like most other grains in a mill. They just, you know, crunch them in the mouth and the oil comes out. And so it, it's a great plant in there. And, and I think if there is one plant not getting grazed and and just hanging out in the mix, the sunflower's not a bad one to have looking at in your paddock when they're all in full flower.
1: Yeah, Now, since you've started doing this, obviously the climate change debate's got really going. And, um, um, and, and some people are saying that the soil's the place to put the carbon um, and um, perhaps we should stop burning it as well. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's going to help. But, um, you know, what is in the atmosphere? Can we um, use photosynthesis to put it back in the soil and keep it there? Um, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. And and not only that, it's managing our water, like the hydrology uh, yeah. of our soil because, I mean, I was pretty – this year I went up in March up to um, – Cower up there early in the year and we are doing a soil day up there and looking at cover crops and it was pretty evident they were getting some really big rains and I'm driving along looking out the window and here's these cultivated work paddocks and water's literally running off brown water across the road and then you've got a pasture paddock there with sheep or something on it and there's no water even laying on it. And Plants are the best way to put moisture into your soil and then, you know, we, if it's running off, or well, we're not even we're not even storing it; it's just running straight off, and and that's where we hear the oh geez, it went from too wet to too dry. You know, we're either in flood or a drought. But if we've got these plants in there and can get that water in and hold it in there, um, I think we're going to you know start to see that our soils functioning like they're supposed to a bit better.
1: Yeah, and also that, you know there's sort of another another dimension to that, and that's temperature too, isn't it, from the sun. Um, oh. photosynthesizing plant isn't a fantastic way of absor- absorbing heat,
0: yep. 100%. And I've done we've done a lot of different experiments and trials here. And, and a good one in the in on a 40 degree day in the summer, if you go out with a soil thermometer in, in a hot day and measure a bare soil, cultivated soil, you can be hitting temperatures of 60, 65 degrees Celsius. And then it you can't go be into good for the soil biology. No. Well, if you think about when you go to the football and you order a pie, they cook it to 65 degrees Celsius to kill any of the bacteria and bugs in, in the, you know, so we don't get sick from undercooked food. So, if they're killing biology like that, if we look at our soils, where all your fence posts rot off in the top 4 inches, that's where all your biological activity is in that top top couple of inches. So, if our soil temperatures are hitting that in the summer, we're not just suppressing these microbes, we're killing them. And then you've got these dead soils that we've got to start again. Um, we've found under this big strip of stubbles and that on the same day through the fence, they might be 35 degrees Celsius. In amongst the cover crop, they're 25 degrees Celsius. So there could be a huge difference in temperature and the way the soil swings as well, um, just by having cover. And I think cover is just something it's just so important to protect that our soil,
1: yeah, so one of the processes that happens on a on the sun shining on a photosynthesizing plant it can be um, you can feel the difference when you go from plastic grass to normal grass on a hot day. Um, photosynthesizing grass does not get hot on your feet, whereas plastic gla- grass does, and it 's because the energy is being converted um, into glucose in a process, so the heat is not um. You know, it doesn't get tra- tra- transferred into long wave heat energy. It just it just gets absorbed. The light just gets absorbed. So it's pretty. It is pretty amazing um, what how it all all those things function. Um, what about um, you know cover crops every year? Uh, I, I reckon I get the stitch doing it all the time. Have you got any perennial solutions where you know you can cover crop for a while and perhaps get your microbiology right and then move into perennial?
0: Yep, yep, definitely, and I think especially in a livestock type system, it's a, it's a really good sort of one to have, and and ideally you'd have a, a highly diverse multi species perennial um, pasture, which you know, like mimicking the Dakota, you know, the, the really productive um, prairies and plains. That's what they all were once, and um, but but to get there, sometimes we try, and I, I found, you know, we try and run before we can walk. And, and when you get these perennial pastures that are getting all these weeds popping up, it's probably a sign that your soil's maybe not there quite yet. Um, because if you look at the succession of your soil from pioneer plants, weeds, and annuals, perennials, um, so we like to go in with the high-diversity annuals, which are, um, you know, there's the cost of sowing them every year, but they're generally cheaper because perennials are a bit more expensive. But we can get really good production off those annuals and prime. Use them to prime the soil. You know, swing that bacterial fungi ratio to be more balanced, more fungi in there. Um, get the rooting depth increased, and and get that function of the soil up. Then start. We might, and we've done it on our farm, like year two or three. Then start stitching in a few perennials, um, which then you can get instant return off your annuals because they'll grow quick you can graze them and then the perennials come through underneath and then maybe year three or four you you just you're more and more perennials and then you just you're set up then and away you go um so yeah it's definitely a really good I think it's just about having your goals and 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 just working away at it and not trying to trying to rush it too much
1: move away from that for a second where are you going to get your um pee from this year the prices just seems to have, off the Richter scale or do you do you buy well, in do you buy in um, phosphorus or do you where does it come from
0: yeah we do so uh, we haven't really used map uh, we might have used single super on a few paddocks transitioning them into what we do We've been using liquid fertilizers that we were we were buying there for a while and now we make all our own we make these bio fermented liquid fertilizers probably make you know about 200,000 liters of them a year that put on our farm. Um, But another source we've been using I really like is the guano. Um, We've been using that uh, along in combination with the liquids and that's, it's more of a slow release um, form of um, phosphorus, Um, but I think it's 12% phosphorus, 30% calcium. So I really like, you know, and it's got all these other minerals and and, um, kelp and coral and stuff they mine it out of caves and that. but yeah so the guano is looking pretty good this year like still sort of mid 800 to 900 dollars a ton um, um, whereas the map and everything's gone right up so yeah we'll be probably just sticking to that using a fair bit of guano which and uh and our liquids uh, for our yeah. pee
1: source so tell us a bit about more about your liquids um how how do you get pee um from a A plant on your farm or no not a plant i mean a a a process on your farm making it
0: yeah yeah so we'll um we'll get a biological source and then feed it to increase the biology and and effectively you know adding milk and molasses and things to to feed the the microbes in in that brew and then we'll we'll grow them for a few days lock it up like we've got these big tanks we lock up like you brew and beer and then we'll add in the sulphates or the minerals, so we might add in um, calcium nitrate in one. We might add in, um, you know, boron or iron or or manganese. Like most of them are like manganese sulphate, um, which is Epsom salts. We'll add into the tank. So we add all them individually, Brew them, And what what we're tra- doing there is the microbes are. Um, I suppose for all those minerals and nutrients to become plant available, they have to go through a process in the soil. Like with microbes converting them into plant available forms, and so we're doing that in tanks, and then then we'll once they're fermented for um, you know a month or so, then we then filter them all back, and we can then mix them all together because they're all stable. Um, you can't mix certain like calcium and phosphorus; you can't mix that together um, without going through that process, or they just lock up and they then it becomes a real mess. But once we've put them through this process, then we can mix them all together, and then we, you know, we've got these big tanks, and then, you know, we've got a liquid system on our um, on our air seeder that we can then squirt this stuff in the soil, um, along with the guano or whatever else we want to use.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when you say you squirt it, in, you actually bury it, do you, or you're putting it on yeah, top? Yeah. So it's in it's sort of injected into the soil. Um, Like a
0: little stream of liquid running down behind with the seed, Um, so it's injected into the soil, and then we'll use a lot of this stuff for our foliar. Like once the crops are up, we're making this, and we don't um, broadcast urea anymore. We dissolve that in in water, like we'll do large amounts because we're doing um, a fair bit, and then we'll add you know fulvic powder, and we'll add. Whatever the lacking minerals are from the plant, we can add that in and then foliar apply it. And um, we're finding if we can get those, um, you know, those different minerals in pretty good balance within the plant, um, that'll generally lead to greater photosynthesis from the plant and less disease, less insect pressure, everything. If we've got all that in balance, so yeah, we, we're. Um, yeah it's sort of a bit of fun we do another thing on the side is yeah making all these fertilizers and that as well in in the shed um in amongst you know all the other stuff
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like to think that us humans don't really know very much when it comes to this um you know there's a lot to know isn't there there's a uh, right. ha- how do you get the how do you get the chemistry balanced
0: um yeah good question well we sort of like we go off soil tests at Act as a bit of a guide, and then and then this sap and tissue test t- test is where we can correct deficiencies pretty well. Because sometimes you can, um, you know, your soil might be low in in whatever that um, like a nutrient, say calcium, but you can put that in, and then it locks up with something else, so you still might be low. Um, there's a there's a thing called a Molder's chart, which really describes how different nutrients can antagonize and 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 work within each other, but when you're going in through the leaf it's an ability to sort of correct some of those deficiencies pretty well and, and generally at a not a big cost you know you could be a couple of bucks a hectare here and there on a certain mineral to give you a pretty good outcome um i've got mates that have had low boron in the leaf and put it on at you know whatever the rate was um you know for say three dollars a hectare and done test strips and found you know up to a ton yield increase in the grain so mm. There's some yeah. pretty good things we can get some pretty good bang for a buck with these um if we do it well
1: yeah so what about what about the future what have you got on the drawing board which is exciting and coming along that you're gonna uh inflict on us next
0: yeah <laughs> um well i think yeah we're still just on forever Trying to evolve and and look at the different mixes and 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 even species within that mix to you know for better performance. So that's something we're always trialling on our own own farm here and then putting them out. Um, and this whole yeah, a lot of this um, I, the seed dressings. We do a lot of work and experimenting with that. I think that's a pretty exciting um, great, you know space that we can all do quite easily and improve on and. Um, and this year we're going to be become a distributor for the guano as well, so we're going to be able to supply that with the seed, um, which is kind of exciting. Um, with yeah, because I think it's just going to t- I think it'll tie in and and complement the mixes because it's very soft on the fungi and, and that as well. So it'll sort of help with what we're trying to do. But you know, I'm never I'm always learning and always hungry for. Um, what next we can do to try and improve and then see how we can share that out with people as well.
1: Well, it sounds like things are very busy at Down Undercovers. So, um, you know, if anyone's listening to this and want to learn a bit more about it, um, Grant Sims is um, certainly sending a few uh, waves through the industry at the moment. I know that we're having a discussion at our family um, executive meeting and I mentioned your name. you Barnett who helps us out knew straight away who you were so you know it's um and he comes from Warwick and Queensland so um you know your name's getting around there it's um good to see that someone is is actually bringing I think what you're doing uh Grant is actually um proving up stuff that we've been playing with for a long time and don't really understand and um and I'm I'm getting you know so it's really good work you're doing
0: oh thanks Thanks for that, um, Tom. But yeah, I don't. We don't get it right all the time, and um, you know, and we don't proclaim to know everything either. Like we, we, we're still always learning, and we, um, you know, always growing as well. So, but that's sort of. I don't think we ever will. And no one, even the top soil scientists you talk to, they reckon, you know, they might know five percent of what they thinks even out there to learn. Yeah, you know, it's such an exciting time to be in um, agriculture. I think.
1: Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned no-till a bit before, um, and, you know, obvi- the, so why is no-till such a um, a benefit? Um, we, we, you know, we definitely are very low-till. Sometimes we till just because the paddock is so rough that we, you know, um, we do it to tidy it up and then try and repair the damage we've done and get it level so we can... <laughs> perhaps get a crop off, you know, uh, cut silage off it or something later on. But um, what are the benefits of not not um, disturbing the soil?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'm a bit, I mean, yeah, I'd never say – I think one thing in all this, whatever type of farming we're doing, um, I've seen, and I mean myself included, when we get so stuck with a set of rules that we've got to 100% follow – yeah. There is probably times where you've got to break them and maybe take one step forward <laughs> to take two steps, yeah, one step back to take two forwards. So
1: it's sort of like understanding people. the damage you might be doing and being aware of it, and then um, changing. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. It's sort of um, the damage. Uh, you know, if you're having a negative effect, then be aware of it because you then be able to be aware to correct it.
0: Yeah, that's right, and I think. Um, there's a lot of examples in everything we do like some you know even a fungicide we could say let's put this on because we're going to protect the plant against a disease that we may get or may not um, but then what's the negatives effect of that and sometimes I don't think we're fully informed of what what the detrimental things are to what we do um, And with the tillage like for us you know like you could go to England and, and those places in the high rainfall where they've done it for years and they still grow these big crops but they've got um, you know, rainfall and cooler climates. So if we get in a more marginal dry area, and I mean there's a lot of work done with this, you know, in some of our paddocks here, if we cultivated that them and we had a dry winter or spring the next year, we might not get a crop versus getting harvesting a grain crop off it. So tillage for us is is you know, it's one of the most destructive things we can do. And and we actually like I was president of Vicno Till for a number of years and on the board there and we actually had this rainfall simulator that really demonstrated the effects we could get different soils that have been cultivated versus not in, in living roots all the time and and the effect on infiltration and that tillage, breaking up the, the glues or the gold male and that holds soil together gives it aggregation. And you see it a lot, especially where there have been, you know, your, your subsoil layers. If you put the shovel in and the top two inches, nice, crumbly, and all that because the roots have repaired there. And then the bottom of the shovel is that rigid, blocky, sort of dense layer that's low in oxygen, low in organic matter and stuff like that. That's when we've broken up the, the topsoil, f- which creates those fine particles. And then when you get rain, it sieves that through through down through the soil profile and creates those duplex or those dense layers. And we've found just on our farm by going to zero till to a disc after 4-5 or five years, when I put the shovel in, I can't tell the top of the shovel from the bottom of the shovel because it's just crumbly all the way. And it's and I suppose, like you say, at, there is times where we look, we've just got to come in and do it. The, the good thing of and we could demonstrate this with the rainfall simulator. The best way to repair that damage is through roots, through a living root, pumping carbon, and their root exudates into the soil. and And I've done a test on a cultivated soil put it in this thing and it and it fully dispersed and all the you know the water that infiltrated through was all brown which is all the f- fine soil particles leaching through your soil and creating those layers and then we plant a crop in there any crop and then you go and do that test 3 months later and the whole way that soil performs is completely changed the same bit of soil and and so roots are a really good way of repairing uh, that that tillage damage that's how they you grow soil is through roots really
1: yeah, and we find it in wetter environments too that um, the paddocks are wetter if you till them. Yep. You know, and yep. um, like like a lot wetter. Um, and and if we leave them alone and direct to, uh, direct sow and, and don't muck it around much, you know, you can drive the ute over that those paddocks all winter, um, but you can't go near them if you cultivate them. And, you know, probably not the next winter either, um, which... You know, it's a, it's a, that's a big advantage in our area, particularly with livestock, heavy livestock running over them and pugging in the winter. Um, you know, if you get good ground covers, it, the pugging goes away.
0: Yeah, and another thing I've seen in those sort of paddocks, like you say, when they're saturated, like I love, like I always drive around with a penetrometer, like a which you can use. You push in the ground a probe that will measure your your soil compaction layers and um, and a shovel and, you know, a few little tools. And it's always good to get out after, you know, half an inch or an inch of rain and put that shovel in and see where the water's laying. And, and when you get your soil structure good through, you know, um, yeah, some of those sort of soil health principles, you'll see water at the bottom of the shovel and it doesn't actually feel wet the soil. And then you'll go to another paddock and then the water just lays at that, that kind of horizon where the topsoil meets that dense layer and which is usually created by tillage and when that water is sheeting there you go there in the winter you know, like you say, all of a sudden the topsoil soggy and wet because it's not infiltrating down. You've got this water layer which can prune the roots, which then usually makes the crop start to go pale green. Because, And a lot of time, okay, what do we do? Let's throw more nitrogen at it because it's looking a bit pale. But a lot of the time it's oxygen. The, the, the roots are sitting saturated in this layer of water that we've created from tillage. So then we we can sort of mask that with, with urea or we improve the soil structure and have more oxygen down there and then we get less of those other symptoms um appearing
1: all right grant so um we finish off our podcast with mistakes and masterpieces and mentors what what mistakes have you made that you'd rather you didn't have
0: um yeah i think like all of us you know we all make mistakes and and oh, we make a lot because we're always trialing and it's I've, you know, at times, um, some of the things I think up and, and go and do, I've got no rule book or nothing to follow. So, um, generally, if they work, um, it's all good. But if they don't, we're sort of learning from that. And and I suppose some of the bigger ones, or what I've found is, when you are implementing a new a change in something, it can take one, two, three, or four years before that to work. Um, you know, for the soil to catch up, or for whatever reason. So it's It's probably not been prepared, um, you know, with knowledge or resources, equipment, Mm. Um, and an example of that is, I suppose, when we introduced the stripper, we use a stripper front when we're harvesting our cereal crops, which just takes the grain off and leaves all the residue there, and so you're left with this massive, big mulch layer of of stubble, which is kind of awesome, but um, then it's it's a change to the way it was done, and we found, you know, the first year we did that. Um, you know, the following year we can't come in wet, so then we you know, timing of sowings is compromised because we've got these big stubbles that'll hold the moisture, but then that carbon and nitrogen cycling, you know, takes a bit more to fire up because we've got more carbon load there. So um yeah, we, we actually sort of now remedy that use cattle as a big process to help cycle and to get that going. But uh yeah, that that was one good mistake, just sort of not not allowing uh, the time for things to catch up to what you're trying to do, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. And your masterpieces, what are the things you're uh, proud of? And-
0: well, I'd probably first up would say, our, you know, m- making our, you know, we've got four beautiful little kids that my wife and Naomi had. Well, that's been a, a highlight for us um, here. But um, I suppose, you know, just getting that diversity back in to the, to the cropping system, you know, like I was saying earlier, where we'd had these monocultures and we're running into different problems. Once we've once we've added that diversity in, and then integrating the livestock, it's it's been a really good thing, um, which we sort of talked about. But also, just you know, stacking those enterprises. Not just, I think now it's quite timely. Um, if you're a grain farmer and you're looking at a wet harvest, you know, and you've got all your eggs in that basket, whereas we can go and sow some summer crops and. So then, okay, we're sort of hedging our bets. If we get a wet summer, we're going to grow more feed here and then that part of the enterprise is going to go well. So probably just integrating those um, enterprises a bit more, being a bit more diverse and, um, yeah, that's probably All uh, right. a good one for us.
1: Yeah, and um, some mentors that, you know, have helped you along your way.
0: Yeah, I've been um, I've been very lucky, I suppose, Um you know, ever since I was younger and coming back full time on the farm, I, you know, any conference I always went to, I'd always sit at the front of the row, you know, pen and paper and just hungry taking every bit of information, and then I'd sort of work out, you know, who the best farmers and that were, and and just go and really hit them up and ask them for information, and um, I think that's where we're very lucky in in, in agriculture is. Um, you know, this is an exact example of that. You know, we're in an industry where everyone's willing to share and and be open with what's worked from and what hasn't. Um, so, uh, that's been, you know, and, and all the people I met when I was with Vic No-Till, different soil scientists from all around the world, you know, and I've had a lot of different ones here on our farm and it, it, I've just been, there's probably been a lot really that now I can ring and, and ask for guidance and advice. So, um, yeah no i just think we're very lucky in this uh industry
1: well thank you very much grant for being on the podcast and i can tell you uh you have taken a bit of stress out of my life But you know ha- having someone like you i can ring up and have a chat to about how we can get diversity into our pastures because i've always wanted to do it and real and we have been playing around with it a bit but um, we're really into it now, thanks to you. So thank you very much, Grant, and thanks for being on the podcast today.
0: No worries, Tom. Thanks very much. It's uh, really exciting and um, I look forward to uh, seeing how it all works out this year. If you're enjoying the RORAG podcast, make sure you rate and review on your
1: favourite podcast app.